This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. Today on Body Talk, we are talking to Emily Wishall. She is a certified rolfer. She has degrees in exercise physiology, and she also is the author of Radical Embodiment. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thanks for letting me be on. You're, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So before we get to your story, mm-hmm. the word embodiment, I see yeah. it everywhere now. Uh, yeah. It's become very trendy. Can you explain for the audience, I think they've all heard of it. Most of them yeah. probably have an idea of what it is, but what is embodiment? Yeah. Um, it's fun that you're starting with that because um, – I also have a podcast and that's one of the first things I ask all my guests is what does embodiment mean to them? Cause I I'm finding there's some general commonalities and, and, and similarities mm-hmm. and everyone mm-hmm. has a little of their own twist and flavor to what embodiment means to them. So I think it's curious to me, embodiment means having the ability to like inhabit your body having the ability to utilize your physical body as a resource to help you anchor into the present moment. Um, It doesn't mean you're there all the time, but I like there's, there's, I believe layers to embodiment. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately my, my most concise statement would be yeah, having the ability to utilize your physical body to anchor into the present moment. And I also, yeah. I was going to say, could you give a practical example of how you might use that in your daily life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Well, I will, (laughs) what first comes to mind, I was like, is there a little like, I don't know, easier example, but, but the example that comes to mind for me personally, Mm -hmm. and is really significant in my journey is, is as a female, as a woman is connecting to my womb space. Um, which I've actually found I, I work primarily with females. Sometimes that word has, has a lot of charge. So sometimes I say like center point of your pelvis, but meaning what is it like to actually be in my womb space, which is very wow. different than thinking about being in my womb space. The first time that I learned and even became aware of that, that was an option was for me, it was really profound because it was the first time that I am not enough voice wasn't there, meaning that Ooh. voice of like comparison, of mm-hmm. comparing myself to others, of trying to like project out a certain way of being. Instead, it was like, I just felt like I was home. Like I just got to, to be myself. It felt easeful, certain and confident, but not a false confidence. And so I'm using that example because it is a place in my body that I come to time and time again, every single day of connecting into that central point of my pelvis, which is also, you know, we're both in the structural integration world mm-hmm. coincides with like my center point of gravity, the womb space also, you know, first women is our source of like creativity. And, um, I just find it a pl- like, that's, I mean, I, I actually now have a better practical example in my hands, but, but to okay. just finish that thought of the womb sure. space, it for me is, my my go-to practical first place that I go. Um, it's not where I bring all my clients first because it can be challenging to enter there. Yeah. But um, you don't start at the SOAS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Not usually. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking. I was like, I'm just gonna get one of those like plastic doohickeys that exist now that people are supposed to lay on to go into their SOAS. Have you seen those? 
Um, it's like soft tissue. <laughs> oh, they look terrible. They really um, do. They look awful. So um, another, like if embodiment is new to somebody, what I would share is like thinking about your hands. I think, you know, we've all done maybe practice where you kind of rub your hands together and then you take them apart and you can feel a tingly vibrating sensation. Most people can reference of what is it like to be in your hands, like have some sort of sense of that. So if embodiment's totally new to someone, I think that that's a somewhat easy access entry mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine, I just want to share. Please. I think my first profound experience with that was in 1985 in a yoga class. And mm-hmm. this was some... Um, this was one of those really interesting teachers. I found out that not everybody does this. Certainly I haven't seen it in the last 20 years, but she always encouraged if you were really into the pose, you could stay there and catch up with the class when you were ready to move on. Mm. And there was one night that used to go every Monday night. And I don't remember what pose we were in. And I now know it was, my Rafe QL obliques, 12th rib, iliac crest, and somewhere in there. All I know mm-hmm. is I was in this position. It wasn't an easy position, but it wasn't painful. And every time I took a breath, there was a little more space. Something mm-hmm. changed, something that I could feel. Mm-hmm. And it was just my breath in that space. Mm-hmm. And staying there and feeling it change with every breath. And, and that just was like, I don't know what this is, but it feels like magic. Hmm. So I hmm. kind of listening to you tell your story mm-hmm. about your womb space made me think about my QL space at the time. Not that I could have articulated it that way. Yeah, that's cool. Was that before you were doing structural integration? Oh my God. Yes. Several. Yes. Several, I like, just was asking that because I'm like, because, you know, Ida loves that space. It's a key <laughs> space for most people. They yeah, don't it know is. How to, they don't know that they have it there. There, I'm gonna. I'll share this too. A patient of mine had an experience. I, for those of you maybe new to the show, I work in a hospital. And we call them patients. She had her psoas touched for the first time, mm. and she was just so amazed by it because she said, "Is this?" She said, "This is so mysterious. I didn't know that that was there." And how many other things are out there that I don't know about? And it just like opened up this sense of wonder for her. That yeah. was just one of the most amazing things. I've been in practice one way or another now for three decades. And it's it's those kind of moments that keep mm. me engaged and coming back. But we're here to talk about you, mm. not about me. <laughs> well, I, I you actually, this may seem silly. I just teared up that example you gave. Me I thought you most, I was looking at you on the screen. I yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I am surprised, but it's the most touching thing to me of when a client has an experience like that, of they didn't even know that that was in their body. Right. And it just is so, to me, it is so profound because it just invites in this opportunity to connect to so much more of our potential. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, yeah. I, I see a trend mm-hmm. uh, of all this trauma informed this and trauma informed that and issues in the tissues and you got to get rid of these memories. And, you know, I, I don't see anybody talking about, can we invoke a sense of wonder and curiosity mm. and exploration? To me, that's 
that's as important, if if not more important, yes. and easy to lose touch with, uh, yeah. particularly if people come to us with with pain issues. But let's let's yeah. uh, let's go back to this radical embodiment idea because yeah. I the majority of my listeners are women, mm -hmm. and so we're going to be talking about something that I have little to no experience with directly as a not woman person. Mm -hmm. uh, but you started out as an exercise physiologist, at least in school, and eventually became a rolfer. And we can talk about that. I'm kind of curious mm -hmm. how you made that transition and what that was like for you. But in reading over your book, it seemed to me like you were very unhappy with your body at an early age. Yeah. My loudest story most of my life, it's it's no longer, but my loudest story most of my life was feeling deeply unhappy with my body, being mo more specifically feeling like the way my physical body looked made me inferior to others, made me less good, made me not enough. Yeah. Um, I first message at an early age. Right? Yeah, it was like, I remember my first feelings of feeling quote unquote too fat and I'm saying quote unquote, cause feeling fat, like is not an actual feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the time that was the language that I had Right. and I was eight years old. I know I'm not, you know, everyone has their own story and journey, but I know, um, I can think of several women who their first feelings of feeling unhappy in their body and with their body image happened around like eight, nine, 10 years old. So I spent then most of you know, my, I guess, I don't know if that's early childhood, later childhood, but basically like 10 on to mid twenties, trying or early twenties, trying to fix my body, meaning, okay, if I can just lose 10 pounds, then I can be happy. If I can just lose 15 pounds, then I can have the relationship I want. Let yeah. me just do this diet. Let me just do this cleanse. Let me try this thing. It was constantly this ticker tape of, let me try the next thing, all mostly external based, meaning outside of myself, trying, right. trying to fix and seeing my body as the, as the problem. I mean, that's the first chapter of my book is my body, the problem. And so my body was not a place that I wanted to be. It was not a place that I wanted to, Im you know, the idea embody. of, <laughs> yeah, Im embody. It was the problem. That's what I believed. And so through my work, through my journey, through really starting to just discover embodiment, I really believe the key to learning how to embrace and love your body exactly how your body is, is by learning how to inhabit your body. Like I, I just, that I think is like one of the first most important things. It's not like an easy necessarily thing, but it can be easeful. So where was yeah, where did you there. first encounter that moment for yourself? Oh, what a good question. Because there were so many like Sure. But what sticks out? Is yeah, like the there's there's when you went, ah, this. There's two. I mean, when you were sharing your story about being in that yoga class in nineteen eighty five and feeling mm -hmm. that sense, I lived at Kripalu. You you you're on the oh, east yeah. coast, right? You probably know I lived there for about six months and wow. That was um How old were you then? I was I was fresh out of no, I had done a year of AmeriCorps right out of college. It was after that. So I don't know, 22-ish, 23 -ish. Okay, so you were a college-trained exercise physiologist living at Kripalu. Yeah. Okay, so that was kind of a deep dive into a totally different thing. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do yoga and eat organic food at six months. I'll be skinny. I will be transformed. I was like, surely I'll be skinny. All these yoga people are skinny. Great. Right. I'll just go. That's not why I lived there. And it was a primary ticker tape just to give the degree of how that was a constant preoccupation in my thought process. Sure. Yeah. So they, they no longer have this, but they used to have a save a program. They would have like 60 full-time volunteers who lived on the property, who worked there, mm-hmm. um, save a Sanskrit for um, selfless service. So I, I was in veggie prep. I chopped vegetables four days a week, but that was like chop, my chop deep- vegetables, carry water. <laughs> yeah. I remember one day I cut 20 gallons of cauliflower by myself. <laughs> I was really proud. <laughs> enough, to, enough to put you off your kitchery. Yeah. Yeah, they had, I mean, amazing kitchery. That's what I would eat for Yeah, breakfast. no, they have great food there. Mm-hmm. There was actually one particular yoga class when I was there that I was with a teacher called David Oss. I wish I knew his last name. I don't know. And he was my first teacher who taught me Kabbalah Bata breathing mm-hmm. at like fire breath. And mm-hmm. he would teach... I remember my first class with him. I show up. He doesn't even have a yoga mat for himself. He has a blanket. There's no music in the class. And I'm thinking, there's no music. What the heck? <laughs> like, come on. Give <laughs> me some I volunteer music. volunteer for? And the end of the class, I was just profoundly moved. And so I would go to his, mm. his classes regularly. You got and, to listen to your own inner music. Yeah, exactly. And he would have us do that Kapala Bhatsi, that fire breathing in mm-hmm. kind of intensive poses. That was, it was probably this one particular class where we did that in several poses. And after, I just was in a completely different state of, of being. I remember going, because, you know, dinner time was right after. And I was like, I can't be with people. I don't want to eat. Like, I just want to sit. And I just remember sitting in front of this window and having my journal, but very few words that came out. Pro- I mean, there were so many little moments when I lived at Kripalu um, of like different emotional releases that came up in class. But that's always been a really profound one of the power of, connecting, utilizing our physical body to also help create a state of deep peace, deep serenity. Um, I want to say deep knowing, but not like intellectual knowing. Just a yeah. Do you mm-hmm. I think yeah. Yeah. I know I know, I, I know what you mean by that. <laughs> yes. It's a hard thing to put into language, at least English language. So did yeah. the next one happen after Kripalu? Yeah, I mean, Kripalu. So, okay, I'm going to interrupt. Please. Because <laughs> I'm fascinated by your story. So, you, when you got to the end of the six months, mm-hmm. um, had you reached the skinny enlightenment that you were hoping for or not? <laughs> no. Okay. So, then, so then no. w- what did you do next at the end of that six months? What, oh, wow. You, That's a good question because like? I went to the opposite. It felt like, like a polar opposite environment after that. And, and one thing I want to just say to finish on the Kripalu is. It did it no, I wasn't that enlightened, skinny image, idealized image that I had thought that I would be after six months. And it was one of the best decisions I had made for myself because it was there that I learned even, you know, the idea of the monkey mind and this vo- inner voice in your head, the mm-hmm. inner critic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know everybody else had that. Like it sounds silly to me now, but I did not know. It was not in my rep, it wasn't in my vocabulary, it wasn't wow. in my languaging with other people. So it was huge and significant in my own journey of realizing, oh, I'm not alone in in feeling these things or in thinking these things. Like other people, that happens to them too. So I moved from Kripalu, which is in Western Massachusetts, if you're not familiar, in like the beautiful Berkshires, then to Kansas City. 
for about okay. five months before I moved to Boulder because I'm I'm from the Kansas area. My my immediate family is no longer there, but at the time, two of my sisters lived in Kansas City, and I could more or less live between the two of them and not have to pay for rent because I was wanting to save money to go to rolfing school because mm-hmm. um, I just volunteered full time for a year and a half after finishing college. So. Um, I worked at the time, one of my job was in an upscale restaurant and bar in downtown Kansas city. (laughs) And if anyone's worked in the hospitality industry, not that it's always like this, but, um, it can be a really crass environment. And Uh, the the way that at least where I was at, the people engaged and, and bantered with each other was really degrading. And, um, I, I almost I, I don't want to use the word toxic because I feel like it's pushed around so much, but that yeah. would that would summarize it I think the, the best and quickly. So I went from living in this Kripalu bubble that was like sometimes almost I would get like it's too conscious oh, to this yeah. opposite spectrum of like people's way of poking fun at each other was to make fun of each other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, certain, there's a certain amount of that. There's a weird drink kind and do of drugs and that we, you know, restaurants yeah. are hard. There's so much, um, substance yeah. abuse in restaurants yeah. and it's a very yeah. high pressure. I think people who've never worked in one don't realize how high pressure it can be. It really is. I feel like everyone should have at least one service industry industry job. Just I to- agree. I also think everybody should have to work six months at a funeral home. Oh wow! I did that. I did that. So I agree. I have not done that, and I agree with that. I'm like, I should sign up tomorrow. Yeah, I did that. Go, I, go for it. I did it in my early 20s, and it really it wow. taught me a lot about life. I I believe that. I believe that. Um, but so at this at this restaurant, you know, I had mentioned I was at Kripalu practicing seva, selfless service, and this restaurant oh I was there God. making money. I was getting paid. And I remember yeah, having to work for tips now. I remember though, having this since like three weeks and I was like, this kind of feels like the true Seva. Like this is like more of a true practice of trying to keep my state of being and, and generous and, you know, customers, you know, some, some are amazing and some were, were not at all. Yeah, and- that, well, there's the saying, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. <laughs> now you had to go be that yeah. person in hell. <sighs> yeah. So so that's where I went immediately after Kripalu. And it was a it was a really challenging time for me. When did you go to become a rolfer? How were you working now in a, in a PT clinic or what was how were you keeping body and soul and a roof over your head? I had been in different PT clinics in my undergraduate and right upon graduating college for a couple months. And then I moved for a year, did AmeriCorps in Southern Colorado. I worked at a homeless shelter, then Kripalu. So yeah, I volunteered for a year and a half, no income. <laughs> and wow. I had paid my way through college myself. So Good for um, that, that was why then, you know, I did the five months of working mm-hmm. in the restaurant. I was also a nanny. So I just worked a lot in that five months to move to Boulder. So while I was going to school at the Rolf Institute, you know, the training itself is usually like, I don't know what it is now, six or eight weeks intensive. And then you have Mm -hmm. a break. Um, So the actual training time, I didn't work. And then I was a nanny in between on the breaks. And I moved to Boulder two weeks before the flood of 2013, which was really devastating to to the city. Okay. So you're new in Boulder. You've had these different experiences. What was it that turned things around for you in terms of accepting yourself and your body? Or was it the wolfing experience or... That was a part of it for sure. I mean, I had a really significant, since we've mentioned the SOAS a couple of times, 
you know, phase two of the Rolf Institute, you're learning the 10 series as well. Mm-hmm. You're, so you're training with a student. It was after I had received session five, which is going into the psoas muscle. That evening, I remember I was out on a walk by myself and just had this sense of like, it feels so easy. Like, oh my gosh, like what I feel so graceful. And so Mm -hmm. then I got really curious. And so notice I was told, you know, aligned in my body. As soon as I had that recognition, I just had a like immediate tears came over my face because I Mm -hmm. realized for the first time through my posture, I had been presenting and pretending this certain way of being that was incongruent with how I felt on the inside. After this psoas session, I had this sense of, I just like felt this deep connection to my inner strength, to like this inherent support while also feeling really open and soft and vulnerable. So it was like, I could be both. I didn't have to choose one or the other. And that was a profound moment. It wasn't like I snapped my fingers and I never pretended through my posture again. (laughs) Um, But it was, it was the moment that really I could actually access in my state of being, in my physical body, a whole new way of being. Body Talk will return after the break. And now a brief message from me. If you're still listening, I'm guessing you enjoy this show. And if you value this show, I hope you'll consider supporting it any way that you can. One way to do this is to join my Patreon page, which you can do for less than a cup of coffee a month at patreon.com backslash body talk radio. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is another huge way to support the show. And those ratings make a bigger impact than you might realize. And last, and I'm sure a lot of you are already doing this, please share the show with your friends, family, colleagues, anybody that you think is appropriate. This podcast is pretty much a one-man band. I created it because it fills a need and I keep doing it because I love it. And if you love it or even just like it a lot, please support the show in whatever way makes sense for you. And now back to our episode. But I think that the, the really of really coming to love my body and embrace my body. So like there are all these little bits and stories, like pieces to it, but I think it really came about more after completing at the Rolf Institute and opening my practice. So I teach a line of work. I'm a certified teacher in what's called the art of feminine presence. Uh, um, Rachel Jane Groover is the teacher of that work. And mm-hmm. that is really where I started to bring together even this idea of like our physical body and our energetic body and where do they integrate where do they line up where mm-hmm. where are you There's in relation the diagram, to them so to speak. yeah and you know i briefly mentioned that womb space example earlier it was in the, my first art of feminine presence weekend that i learned about my <laughs> womb space other than like i menstruate every month and it can have a baby and i learned yeah. how to act what it means so did you access like, through a guided meditation how did that yeah i was in a three-day um, weekend retreat. Um, I ended up doing a year long feminine leadership mastery program to deeper train in, in this line of work. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was my first pivotal moment was in that weekend and yes, through guided meditation. Exactly. So, uh, kind of want to 
go backward a little bit and go forward a little bit. So, and you write about it in your book also. That feels like the the good way to say the healing and growth journey. We go forward a little bit. We go backward a little bit. We go forward. Yeah, 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 exactly. We do. We do. And hopefully it's, you know, uh, two steps up and one step back. Yeah. Yeah. Or less time in between. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's funny, I just want to go off uh, with you on a tangent about our clients who catastrophize when they're in the middle of treatment and they have a setback and they think they've gone all the way back to the beginning and they really haven't. Yeah. But um, that's, that's that's always, it's amazing how consistent that, that reaction can be. And it's like, no, it's just a temporary thing. Yeah, um, that's chapter 11 of my book. I call it Bumps Along the Way. Where were you getting the negative messages from? Did they come from yourself? Did they come from the outside world? And then I want to kind of take that into the 21st century. But what was it like for you back in the 20th century? I mean, obviously I wrote this book on, and this is my work. I've done a lot of reflection and thought of like, why, why was I from such a young age so strongly dissatisfied with my body? Um, and I, you know, a lot of it wasn't that my parents were like, you should diet or you're fat, you're chubby. I think a lot came from what I saw externally and what I perceived that meant for me. Meaning, you know, I saw maybe other girls as smaller, um, you know, maybe the imaging that I, for sure, the imaging that I saw on, this is way, you know, of course, pre-social media, so that I saw on billboards or in magazines Mm, or on the television television, of the way that the women looked, the women that were idealized or that were getting a lot of acceptance and approval. Um, And I just looked at myself and I felt chubby. You know, I have one memory of my maternal grandmother my mom and I were visiting her and her saying, commenting, you know, we were saying goodbye and commenting, saying something, well, Emily's looking a little chubby or Emily's looking a little big. And she did, I was right there. She didn't say it to me. She said it to my mom. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we got in the car, you know, I remember my mom being, oh, don't, you know, don't listen to what she has to say. You know, it doesn't oh, mean that, anything. Good for you, mom. That's excellent. Yeah. Not thank you. Not everybody gets that. Not no. Anybody. And I pretended I was fine and I, and I wasn't. A new realization that is curious to me is I think I energetically took on a lot that wasn't mine, meaning that that grandma mm-hmm. who I you know is no longer with us, I loved. She she was really dear. And my mom's parents were severely critical of her weight, like severely. My mom I am the youngest of seven. Um oh my, my mom had seven babies in 10 and a half years. And I, I won't go into all of that because it feels a little personal to her, but I'm um sure that's fine they were really critical of her weight and especially, you know, with having that many babies. And of course your weight's going to fluctuate, yeah, right? No, no, no. <laughs> of that's course a, that's you're a lot of... growing human babies. My, um, gra- my grandmother, my grandmother had uh, eight, uh, eight children and four miscarriages. Mm. My father came from a family of 13. Wow. There's a certain solidity that comes with being able to successfully procreate that many tiny little humans. Yeah. So how dare you be critical of that? Totally. So now we go to the 21st century, however, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, look, I just had my baby. And two weeks later, I look better than I did before I had my baby. Oh, because, my yeah, right. So, so I feel like it's so much tougher on kids, particularly women, because of social media. There's this social yeah. contagion idea. We have that much more input. Totally. And I'm curious if you see that manifesting in your practice. Social media is just the most interesting thing, you know, it, it, it connects us and it disconnects us simultaneously. <laughs> right. And I, and I think yeah. that I, I'm such a, always like 
really focusing in on, and this is like social media is just one example of what is your underlying motivation or intention? Um, and even mm-hmm. when you're scrolling on social media, just kind of keeping in mind or checking in with yourself. Because it's so easy to, if you're scrolling or you're looking at images, especially kids now are on so young um, and, and they haven't, you know, had much chance to discern anything for themselves as far, you know, they're still in that process. And then yeah. young girls are going on, you know, TikTok or Instagram and all these filters are used, which is, so not only, you know, I was seeing airbrushed photos in my day. Oh, yeah. And yeah, now yeah, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. yes. a whole other level of, filters and yeah they do have control of yourself now i mean yeah we had our photos here we had the acne airbrushed for us on our senior pictures away we can control the airbrushing yes right right oh i can make my own eyes a little bigger awesome i think it just of course leads to some really disordered perceptions beyond false expectations of how you're supposed to look um that aren't even actually physically attainable unless you get really you do something really dramatic or have surgery or do you want to hear a really weird thing i found out about and this is from a man who's looking at men's issues both men and women have issues with their females or their maleness and it's it's happening out in your area too leg extension surgeries no so they're putting something in the femur oh that that can be adjusted yes so so we can get you anywhere from three to six inches taller in your femurs. I mean, if you can get to three, that's extraordinary. Do you know what one of the drivers might be? We mm. don't know. Yeah. It's speculated that one of the drivers is Tinder. Because 90% of the profiles oh. on Tinder from women say they want to find a man who is six feet or taller. Uh-huh. But there is this interesting look at, oh, as that has changed. So has this leg extension surgery changed? Isn't that and interesting? How weird is that? Men yeah. getting leg extension surgeries. Yeah. So they don't have to lie about this because they, they know that 90% of the women, if they're not six feet, will right pass by. them by. And if you're five, eight, you can't really lie about it in person. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So we, how interesting. So, yeah. It's like, it, you know, so you want, you want to talk about dysmorphias. They're yeah. everywhere, man. They are male, female, like totally like I, it's, and I'm just even glad you brought that example in the person you had, because, you know, yes, my work is centered right now specifically on, on, on women or people who identify as female. And of course, males have their own, you know, issues and struggles with body image and body acceptance and, I think it ultimately comes part of what ultimately comes down to is this desire, this need we all have to receive love, to receive approval, to receive acknowledgement, you know, whether it be from our family, whether it be, you know, if we are in a relationship, your, your partner, or maybe it's like you're wanting that partner. And so trying to look a certain way for them, um, where I think that's part, you know, we're all human. None of us are immune to that. And I think to really help support us in shifting from having that being the primary way that we operate, it's really important to start some sort of practice where you're more internally focused and in, in meaning like to, you know, go into the idea of social media and our phones of not starting or ending your day, but specifically starting your day immediately plugged into your phone. Yeah. Because if you're immediately going into phone or going into email, going into the news, 
you're immediately, it's even almost, I feel it like that energetic popping up and out of yourself into what's happening here, what's happening here. And then middle of the day, you're like, oh, wow, look at so-and-so. They look amazing. Oh, I just feel shitty. Or, oh, my, like my stomach's too big. I should just suck it in. Or, oh, I need longer legs or, you know, or I'm never going to be tall enough for this person, whatever the thought loop might be. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be so much more challenging to actually discern out of that, to take a breath, to take a pause, to check in with how is it that you really feel? And if we don't know how we really feel, we don't know what it is we need and we don't know what it is we really want. And we're going to be so much more easily swayed by marketing, by advertising, by comparison and all of that. So you just gave me, you just gave me a wonderful idea. You know, I love that early morning time when Mm -hmm. it's still quiet out, the world is just waking up. And Mm -hmm. yeah, if you immediately go to your phone and start like, because I pick up my phone and it's actually somebody's trying to call me. <laughs> that was freaky. A phone call. Oh my god! <laughs> um, yeah, it's talking to people. Forget that. That's text me, man. Right. Um, but uh, you know the how you set your day. It's like it can have such an effect on how you set your own tone, your internal tone, your mental tone, your emotional tone for yeah. the day. And I know sometimes um, I work with publishers who are in the UK, so they're five or six hours ahead of me, depending on where we're at. So sometimes while I'm waiting for the coffee in that quiet moment, I might look to see, okay, do I have any emails from them? No. Okay. Then I'm just going to put it down. If I do, I might make the choice to answer it because I know that by 10 o'clock in the morning, my time, they're already starting to wind their day down. So, but otherwise I really try to avoid a lot of external stimuli first thing Mm. in the morning because then I can kind of just say, where am I at today? But Mm -hmm. you gave me a great idea for a breakfast cereal called Thought Loops. Thought (laughs) Loops. For every morning, pour yourself a bowl of Thought Loops. Are they going to be gluten free? (laughs) You know, thought loops. Different, sounds, different, I love different flavors, that. Uh, thought yeah, loops with uh, maybe different textures because it different gets you textures and um, gets you into sensation. Cinnamon thought loops now have more positive affirmations. You know, uh, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like, like some strawberry flake ones if you're yeah. just like wanting some like mm-hmm. I don't know what that would be like love or. Sure, yeah. strawberry thought loops, cinnamon thought loops, um, sugar-free thought loops, you know, to to kind of bring this back to some kind of sanity. What inspired you to say, you know, I, I think I need to write a book about this? Yeah, um, it was in 2020 um, when I started okay. the process, November 2020. So the the fact that the world was, you know, wasn't fully shut down, but it was mostly we were in the pandemic mm-hmm. um, was a big driving factor. I had more time and I was really... I feel really called to help shift the narrative that a woman's worth is tied into her weight um, and to really support women in that. And I also, because what I do sometimes can feel like, oh, you do this and you do this. And it it can feel a little maybe confusing for people, how they fit together. Right. Looking at it from the outside. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so it felt like a book was a really helpful way to bring my, my work and my process into a concise, clear, tangible package that is also very affordable, is really available. Mm. Um, Yeah. I will say the writing of the book was way more of a healing process 
that I could have ever imagined. Well, it's very personal. It's very personally written. I mean, you really yeah. you reveal a lot of your own vulnerabilities and insecurities, I think, in a way that readers can really identify with, but that's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, the the I was in a program that that took me start to finish. That's how it all happened, and um, my, it's my publisher's program. And it was the the writing of the manuscript was amazing and challenging in its own in its own time. Um, the most challenging was my first round of developmental edits when I actually had to go back and read the words I had written and you know put them in order, put them in a way that made sense. But it was the reading of my words that. It's like, whoa, <laughs> I would read it and I'd have tears or I, you know, I was feeling, I think a lot of sure. like pain, a lot of hurt that I had never really, I hadn't fully felt and fully processed. So, so that's great that it was part of your own healing. and Completely. And even after it came out, it was like, literally three days after it came out, I was like, what the F did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I can remember. Yeah. It's like, did I, I, I it felt so abstracted for me. Yeah. The first time that I really held it in my hand, it was just like, this is weird. <laughs> it was wonderful, it but is. it was like, weird. This, this is that question that everybody wants to ask, and it's the difficult question to answer because actual mileage varies. Different people are different. But if somebody is struggling with trying to find more self-acceptance, what would your recommendations be? Where Where could they start? Where could they go for help? I mean, I really, I think one of the answers I give, I think most often is, is to just start inviting yourself to spend five minutes every day in your body, setting a five minute timer on your phone, putting on do not disturb. Maybe in the morning, if you're inspired to like not get on your phone and not get out in the world, just spend five minutes of, okay, checking in with your breath, maybe breathing in a certain pattern, maybe asking yourself how to do I feel? You know, and I love asking myself, like, how do I feel physically? How do I feel energetically? How do I feel emotionally? And not just staying at the surface, but going a little bit underneath the surface. And then mm-hmm. the end of those questions, asking yourself based on how I feel, what would help me feel just a little bit better? So you're not trying to like bypass anything. You're not trying to like amp yourself up in the practice. You're actually gifting yourself the time to acknowledge how it is you really are, which to me is a huge expression of you starting to connect into your own worthiness. Um, I think that, you know, if you feel unhappy in your body or don't have good body image, usually you also don't feel worthy. And if you don't feel worthy, you're not going to take the time to really be with yourself and your ego and your mind will think, well, I don't have the time. I'm busy. I have little kids or I have to get to work or I have to do, you know, I think so many of us were just like life just seems to just almost in a way, get busier and busier. I'll get a little personal here myself here sharing things. But, um, you know, I just had an incident last week. But um, I I think sometimes people are afraid if they go all the way down to that bottom, what's left. And and I think what if you can get all the way to the bottom of the thing, and it takes time, sometimes you can literally bounce back from that. Because you could say, oh, I know what this is. And, and this happened to me very profoundly just last week where I had a series of things happen that just really impacted me emotionally, took me back to like when I was three or four and mm. the, the, the my friend across the street, his dad got transferred so he moved away and he was very shy and it had taken a long time to become friends because I was very outgoing and my sister was like, got to be cool, got to be cool. 
dial it in, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it just like, I just, I literally, I mean, you know, my remembrance of it is like one day I woke up and he was gone kind of thing. And there was mm-hmm. no, there was no goodbyes, no kind of anything. It's just light switch on, light switch off. Mm-hmm. And, and I had something happen in my life personally that like triggered me right back to that place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went into work. And, uh, you know, usually going into work for me, I'm sure it's that way for you too. You could be having a bad day and suddenly you feel a lot better going into work. Totally. Isn't that a great feeling? It is. It I is. get in, I get in and I find out that my 8 a.m. appointment has canceled. And then within 15 minutes, I find out that my next appointment had canceled. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I always have other things to do, but mm-hmm. it just was just, it just hit me, you know, like one, two. And, you know, it had, these things had nothing to do with me. Yeah. At all. But I just sat with it and it's like, oh, this, for some reason, what's at the very bottom of this for me is feeling unwanted. Mm. I'm not wanted. And then all I had to do was sit with it long enough and look at all the examples that gives me evidence to the contrary of that. Yes. And just in sitting with it long enough and hey, I had two hours. (laughs) where I didn't have to see anybody, I could go, wow, there's a part of me that still feels unwanted and it's that old and that deep. But look at all this evidence to the contrary that shows you that that's not the case. And and I had this most wonderful bounce back from Mm. sitting with the uncomfortable place long enough to get to the bottom of it, literally and and figure. Yeah, beautiful. And the fact that like, I mean, one, it just shows your level of resource and skill and capacity to be able to be with that, particularly because you did it a lot, you know, you weren't in a, you know, you didn't have like a facilitator or support with you. And I have learned from good facilitators. Yeah. 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 It's a skill to develop. Totally. Yeah. So I feel like you have that skill. Um, And what a great, like beautiful example of like really being able to give gift yourself the time that, I mean, it showed up, but you could have done other things, but you give to yourself oh, yeah. the time. I had other things I was going to do at that time. but Yeah. But to said, you sit with what is it that I'm really feeling, distill it down and then also like move beyond it. Yeah. Yeah. And that just took sitting with it long yes. enough to watch it move. In, in a way, it's strange. It's like you're tuning into yourself, but you're also trying to observe yourself. Yeah. It's a weird kind of duality. Yeah. Uh, and then you could say, oh, this is what feeling unwanted feels like. All right, I'm going to feel that. And then just continue to observe that state while you're moving through your day. Yes. Uh, but I, I, again, I was really lucky to be exposed to that many, 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 many years ago. And- it's so interesting too, that, that you share, I, um, I won't probably go with so much of my, cause it might be long, but the, I am not wanted belief, mm-hmm. um, when my book came out, the, it came out end of April and it was like May. I'm also currently training to facilitate breath work. And so I've been doing oh, lots nice. of breath work this year. And mm-hmm. um, May went into my own inner, literally the month after my book came out, deep, deep personal, deep healing that went all the way back to when I was first conceived, when I was in utero, my, my birth and some birth trauma. Uh-huh. Um, but it always ultimately triggered from that inner, this voice saying, I'm not wanted. Um, wow. Yeah. And I just put a book into the world. <laughs> <I was laughs> well, like, that's when oh, you're going to find out. Of course, this is going to get triggered. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a scary thing. Yeah. That's a scary thing. That's yeah. a really, you know, it, 
it's going to be accepted or it's going to be rejected or some yeah. both. And yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, the, the, the worst part for me was actually waiting to, uh, in that limbo between turning in the manuscript and having it published where I was waiting for the feedback. Mm. And was like, was it going to be not as good as I thought it was? And were people going to say, mm. "Your baby's ugly. We're sending it back." You know? Yeah. It's 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 that in itself is good ego training. Totally. <laughs> totally. So if you want to train is, your ego, write a write a book and get feedback on it. Yes, my God, <laughs> yes. Um, Emily, this has been a blast. I could go on for. I feel like we'd go on for a few more hours, but I feel like yeah, we need to be yeah. wrapping this up. Is is there something else you'd like to share uh, with the audience about? Radical embodiment. Close out this section of body talk. No, I mean, this is so, thank you. I, yeah, it's been so easy. And I just, yeah, I feel like we could chat about so many things. I mean, I think what I would like to say, like radical embodiment is, it, it's radical in the, the fact that you're radically making a conscious, consistent choice every day to choose to start to be more and more in your body, to start to cultivate that capacity more and more. And it's radical because in our typical day-to-day -day life, we're not actively invited into our body. Um, it's actually often the opposite. So I guess I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Emily, yeah. thank you for being on the show today. This has been fantastic. Uh, listeners, everything about Emily and her book and all those good things will be in the show notes at always. Emily, thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave. One quick, I do have a free practice. Um, oh, if people okay. are curious, I, I maybe should have said that it's called stop the body hate, how to stop the mental loop of feeling bad about your body. So if somebody is actively like in that state and having a challenging time, it's, I, it's a guided meditation I guide you through in detail. So we can find that on yeah. your website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. We'll have, I'll be sure to link that specific one right in the show notes. Emily, thanks for being here. Thank you, David. Thanks okay. everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on Body Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Body Talk with David Lasondek. I'm David Lasondek, structural integrator, fascist specialist, author, podcaster, all those things. Hey, uh, just a reminder, if you like the show, please support it. Leave a rating, leave a review, become a patron at patreon.com backslash bodytalkradio. If you want to get in touch with me about the show, you can find me on all the social media platforms. And you can also email me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. The music that you hear, as always, is by David and the Disasters. See you next time on Body Talk.